Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. They say revenge is sweet. They also say revenge is a bish, uh, a bish, a dish. Oh. They also say revenge is a dish best served cold. So putting those things together, I guess revenge must be some kind of ice cream. I mean, I'm surprised nobody's thought of that. Like, that would be a great name for an ice cream. Now, these are fitting descriptions of revenge because often the image in our minds is someone savoring the moment, almost tasting the justice on their tongues. Do you like the taste of revenge? Or even if you uh, haven't tasted it, do you imagine it to be sweet and satisfying? Our passage this morning is all about retribution and revenge. Retribution is when you take some kind of payment or penalty for a crime or some wrong that someone has done to you. It's payback. Revenge is basically the same thing, but usually when we use the term, it comes with a nasty desire to really, really get back at the other person, and more often than not, to hurt them even more than they hurt you. What are Jesus' disciples meant to do about wrongs done to them? Are we allowed to take our revenge on others? I have three Latin headings for us this morning, and if you don't speak Latin, don't worry, neither do I. The first one is an actual proper thing, which was the inspiration for it all. The other two, I used Google Translate to translate, and uh, the third is, is, an, is a thing. You see it in Scripture and in other writings, but we don't usually hear about it in Latin. So our three headings as we look through this passage this morning, first, Lex Talionis, meaning the law of retribution. Second, lex non-resistentia, the law of non-resistance. And third, lex gratiae, the law of grace. By far, the the second section will be the longest. Now, much like last week, there is so much packed into just these few verses. So we're going to go over them and we're going to savor them as we feast on God's word this morning. Now, before we dive into them, it's worth noting that this is the second last of Jesus' so-called antitheses. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are six in total, and this is the fifth. And just to remind you, they're called antitheses because an antithesis is something which is opposed to or contradicts something else. So it is the opposite of something. Now, that's, that's a fitting name. It's an appropriate name for these sayings because Jesus says in each one, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
And so it sounds like he's contradicting or saying the opposite of what has come before. But again, if you cast your mind back quite a number of weeks now, where we saw Jesus saying that he has not come to abolish the law, but he has come to fulfill it, then it's important to consider what he is opposing. If he hasn't come to abolish it, then surely he has not come to oppose the Scriptures. And so even though that's what it looks like, because Jesus is often, more often than not, in these quoting Old Testament Scriptures, even though it looks like he is contradicting them, what we've seen all along through this, this series, through these last three weeks, is that he's actually contradicting how the scribes and Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament. That is what he is setting himself up in opposition to. And so Jesus is not contradicting Scripture, the very Scripture that he fulfilled, but he is contradicting the abuse of Scripture that was rife in his day. And he will do that again in this passage. And so let's begin with Lex Talionis, the law of retribution. Now, kids, I mentioned Latin. Have any of you heard of Latin before as a language? Yeah? Yeah? Does anyone know any Latin words? No, you're not a child. Yeah, well, it's, Latin is an old language. It was spoken in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, and it actually sounds a lot like modern Italian, which is not surprising. It's the same region. Now, if you go looking, now, uh, you guys, some of the kids, you said you do know some Latin words. If you go looking in, in the English language, you will find that there are many places that Latin is actually used. Either it's being used straight out as Latin words or as the root of some of our words. So, for example, the Latin word for tooth is dente. Now, does anybody know what that sounds like? Dentist. That's right, Jasper. Dentist. And in verse 38, Jesus describes, to use another Latin phrase, what is sometimes called the lex talionis, the law of retribution. Now, in Latin, that is literally the law of the claw, talionis, talon, right? And, but what it has come to mean is the law of retribution. You can see why they gave it that name, the law of the claw, the law of payback, of retribution. And you see it there in, in verse 38, don't you? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, dentem pro dente, if someone takes your eye or your tooth, you can take out theirs. That's the principle. And Jesus here is quoting straight Old Testament. Exodus 21 verse 24, Leviticus 24 verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19 verse 21 are the three places where we see these examples of eye and tooth. And the middle one there in Leviticus 24 spells it out the clearest for us. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So if, say, in the middle of a fight, someone gouges out or damages another person's eye, then that person shall pay with their own eye. Now these were the civil laws that were given to the nation of Israel to help govern it and ensure justice was carried out. That was their purpose. Since the fall, human beings have been at each other's throats, always seeking revenge. Cain kicked it off by killing his brother Abel because he was jealous of him. 
And then five generations later, listen to what his great, great, great grandson Lamech says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech's revenge, as you see there, was way out of proportion. A, a, A young man struck him and he kills him. A person wounds him, he kills him. 77-fold is his revenge. Now multiply that by however many people and generations, and you can imagine how bad things would spiral out of control if everybody acted that way. And actually, you don't have to imagine. Because what happens only a couple of chapters later in the book of Genesis? God floods the earth because of its wickedness. Because every intention of the thoughts of every person's heart was only evil continually. And that extended to a callous disregard of human life. Lamech's legacy of revenge lived on. Genesis 6.11 tells us the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. This is why after the flood... God introduced the lex talionis of life for life, the principle of retribution. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Its purpose was to limit the carnage, to ensure the payment and penalty was fitting to the crime. And it was to show the immense value, the preciousness of human life. To use another common Christian Latin phrase, humans are made in the imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. So to destroy one is not just a sin against that person, but an act of significant sin and rebellion against God. Because you are destroying somebody who is made in His image. Remember, we talked about moral laws a few weeks ago, which apply to all people everywhere at all times. This is one of them. The principle of life for life is part of God's Noahic covenant and applies to all people in all societies everywhere at all times. Its purpose is to ensure that human beings recognize the sanctity of human life and maintain justice in society. Now, I've changed my mind on this over the last few years as I've studied God's Word. And I understand that this can be a confronting thing for us to grapple with, especially in our society, in our country, where we don't have the death penalty. Now, there are, of course, many complications that arise when in considering this. It's not just we say, yep, that's, that's a good thing, so let's put it in, write it into law. Well, we won't go into all of that now. But at its core, the principle of life for life is sound and biblical and ultimately good and just. So fast forward to the nation of Israel. After God floods the earth, he institutes this with Noah And now he establishes a people and God reveals to Moses the laws that his nation should keep. And he comes down from the mountain to deliver them to all people, to all, sorry, the people, his people, Israel. 
And we have the lex talionis, the principle of retribution, expanded out to include not just life for life, but also injury for injury. Now, this is not a moral law. These were laws laid out for the nation of Israel. But they were supposed to serve the same purpose, the purpose of creating a just society. It was supposed to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. If a punishment was too small, then it wouldn't stop people from committing the crime in the first place. If the punishment was too big, then it wouldn't stop the cycle of revenge. The Lex Talionis was put in place to limit Lamech's legacy. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No more, no less. And it's worth saying, as a general principle of law, this is actually a good principle which we seek to abide by in our own society, don't we? Even though we don't have death as the penalty for murder, we want the punishment to fit the crime because it helps people recognize the gravity of their decisions and it's supposed to steer them away from crime as they weigh the cost. And we won't always get the penalty right, no doubt, but it's the right standard to aim for. Well, this lex talionis, this principle of retribution is all well and good for society. We might say, yeah, that that sounds right. But can and should we apply it to our own relationships? Well, Jesus seems to say no, right? And that takes us to our second law. Lex non resistiente, law of non-resistance. Now, just to be clear, as I said, this isn't a thing. There's no actual law called this. I'm using the term loosely. But I hope it helps us remember what Jesus is teaching us in this antithesis, in this passage. He says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't referring to the devil here. He's not contradicting James. You remember in James's letter, he tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Jesus is not talking about the devil. He's talking about the person who seeks to and even succeeds in carrying out evil against us. They are the person who harms us, who hurts us. And do you notice how far he goes in how we should respond to such a person? Do not what? Do not resist. That's right. Do not resist. It's not even don't collect your eye or don't knock out his, tr- his tooth, don't get the retribution that you are owed. No, he goes even further and he says it's do not resist. I saw a video last week of a YouTuber who caught a man stealing his stuff with, uh, on camera. And so he managed to track him, you know, did some clever things, got the police involved. And then when they confronted the thief, after a bit of him trying to get away with it, he eventually admitted it. He felt terrible. And as a penalty, the police ordered him to pay him back money for the damages because he destroyed his cameras. But because the YouTuber, he got his stuff back, that's all he really wanted. And he believed that, you know, catching him was punishment enough. He said, you know what, don't worry about the money. He gave the thief back his money. The thief was embarrassed and ashamed. If Jesus was simply saying, don't retaliate, well, that's the kind of thing we'd be talking about. Don't get your payment back. Don't get what you actually deserve for the hurt 
But no, Jesus says, don't even resist the one who is evil. That is a strong statement. He's basically saying, be passive in the face of hurt and harm towards you. That is radical non-resistance. The image we get is one of a person charging at you, perhaps with an axe or something like that, ready to do you great harm or even take your life, and you simply stand there ready to accept it. To use the YouTuber example, it would be him not just handing the money back, but it would be him not even chasing him up for the stolen stuff in the first place. It would be him saying, you know what, man, you can, you can just keep the stuff. Are we willing to do that? What's your reaction to Jesus' call to radical non-resistance? Now, I bet I know what you're thinking, because it's where my mind goes too. It's the immediate but. But he's stealing, and stealing is wrong. And where's the justice in that? Are you saying that if someone tried to mug me while I was walking home at night, that I should just let them? I mean, this sounds like a recipe for chaos, where gangs rule the streets. Those are important questions, and they're ones that we will address in time, in time today. I want you to sit on them for now and open your heart and your ears to what Jesus says first. Are you willing to seriously consider Jesus' call to radical non-resistance? Jesus spells out what he means by giving us four examples. Firstly, turn the other cheek. Secondly, give the person suing you your cloak as well. Thirdly, go the extra mile. And fourthly, give to the one who begs or borrows from you. Verses 39 to 42. And we know he's not talking about the devil. One of the reasons is because in each example he says, if anyone would do these things. It's clear that the one who is evil is such a person. They are an antagonist. That is, someone who is against you and is seeking to do you harm by these actions. So how do we respond to such people? Well, the first three examples Jesus gives more obviously go together. Kids, do any of you know the phrase, to turn the other cheek? Do you know that one? Anyone? You heard that before? No, oh, there you go. I thought somebody might have heard it. Well, adults, can you help them out? Usually, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? Overlook. Yeah. To overlook, to not fight back. That's basically what it means. Be ready to be, be, be ready and willing to receive another blow. Now, what we mean when we say turn the other cheek is pretty close to what Jesus means here but it is more. Notice how Jesus actually specifies the right cheek in the passage. Why does he do this? Why doesn't he just say, if someone slaps you on the cheek? Well, if someone is going to slap you on the right cheek, which hand would they be using if you were facing me? 
your left hand, right? Because you'd be coming this way. You'd be using your left hand. And was everyone in Israel left-handed? No. What Jesus is likely picturing here is a backhand slap with the right hand. And such a slap was not just to try and inflict pain. That wasn't just the purpose. In the culture of the day, it was also a huge insult. Let me give you yet another quote from the Mishnah, which I've done a couple of times these last few weeks. You might remember it's a third century collection of tractates, pieces of writing that dealt with various topics to do with Jewish law. Now, this is from the Bava Kama, which was all about compensation for damages on people and property. It says this, If he slapped him on the right cheek with the back of his hand, which is more degrading than a slap with the palm, he must give him 400 dinars. Now, the price of a normal slap, if you use just your palm, was about 200 dinars, or denarii, which was the currency of the day. Now, that was about eight months worth of wages, 200 wages, 200 dinars. Just think about that. Now, as you can see here, a backhand is more degrading and therefore required a bigger payment, one of over a year's worth of pay for slapping somebody with a backhand. And when you think of it like that, when you consider the penalty of how serious this was considered, then turning the other cheek suddenly seems like a bigger deal, right? If that kind of offense induced that kind of penalty, then turning the other cheek meant a couple of years' worth of wages of penalty. Not only this, Jesus is picturing not just someone who wants to hurt you, but somebody who wants to humiliate you. You see that? The backhand was degrading. This is not just physical pain, but emotional pain as well. Can you be radically non-resistant to someone like that? Next, in verse 40, Jesus describes someone who wants to drag you before the courts for your cloak. Sorry, for your tunic. And the tunic was the inner garment that basically everybody wore. The modern equivalent would be a shirt and shorts or a dress. Sometimes it would, that's, they didn't even have any underwear underneath that. And the cloak was a versatile outer garment, which was most important in winter months to keep someone warm. Now, it's hard for us to relate to living up here, but I'm sure we've all been to and spent some time in colder climates. And for some of us, the dry season is plenty cold enough. I've seen some of you and your cloaks. If somebody took your tunic, then you'd be left with just your underwear, if that. And so to give them your cloak as well, would mean being fully exposed to the elements, to the cold, to the freezing weather. And not just at the mercy of the cold, but also left with the shame of being either almost naked or completely naked. If somebody is so willing to deprive you of such an essential item, would you really give them more? Talk about a radical request. 
That Jesus is no longer just calling us to non-resistance. He's calling us to active giving up of our own selves and stuff to someone who is actually harming us. When was the last time you felt generous enough to sacrifice even more for someone who has already caused you so much loss? Finally, if anyone forces you to go, well, thirdly, sorry, one mile, go with him two miles. Now, kids, have any of you heard this phrase, to go the extra mile before? You heard that one? Anyone? Oh, there you go. You're learning, like, new English phrases. And to go the extra mile, these days, when we talk about it, it usually refers to someone doing more than what is expected of them. So if your mom or dad asks you to clean the toilet, and you not only do that, but then you also go and clean the bathroom, and I'm sure many of you do this, right? Yeah? Well, we say that you are going the extra mile. Or if an employee stays back an extra half hour at work without getting paid for it, they are, as we say, going the extra mile, doing more than what is expected of you. There is a key difference between that and what Jesus is talking about. Your parents and your boss are not your enemies. Or at least, I certainly hope they are not your enemies. By and large, they're not seeking to harm you or do you evil. Understanding the context helps us grasp what Jesus is talking about. You see, in the Roman Empire, there was a reasonably common practice of soldiers having the power to force someone to walk somewhere or carry something for them. It was basically considered a, publicly, a public service to the empire, perhaps similar to some countries who have forced military service, right? It was a service, but you had to do it. You had no choice. We actually have an example of this later on in Matthew 27. When Jesus is led to Golgotha, the soldiers compel Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. That's the same word as forced in our verse in Matthew 5. You can imagine why people living in first century Palestine, especially the Jews who hated the Roman occupation, would have hated this practice as well. Not only would it have caused physical pain, but the whole time it would be a reminder that your own people were crushed by these mighty brutes. If you want to talk about enemies, the Roman Empire were definitely the enemy. And yet Jesus says to go two miles. I wonder how our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea and Afghanistan, where the nation does all sorts of things to make being a Christian extremely difficult. Read this instruction. In light of Jesus' teaching here, how do we consider our own setting when we experience milder versions of this? We had an example of this this week as the Northern Territory government seeks to roll out legislative changes that make religious freedom that are much harder for us as Christians. Actually, I think it was a nationwide thing. I don't know if you filled the survey that I emailed out this week or last week, but I did, and it was interesting to check my own heart as I did, recognizing that somebody is going to be reading these responses. 
It was timely for me to be thinking about this passage. How do I speak to politicians and other advocates who want to limit our ability to live out Christian convictions? How do I speak to politicians? How do we speak to those who seek to limit our ability to live out Christian convictions? Are we ready to continue to bless instead of curse, to keep giving sacrificially to our community without getting all in a huff about how we are treated? Notice how in each of these examples that Jesus gives, he isn't just talking about physical injury. There is shame and humiliation involved in radical non-resistance. Which again shows that in our personal relationships, Jesus is saying that we don't abide by the law of retaliation, but by the law of non-resistance. We don't seek revenge, but on top of that, we go above and beyond to show mercy and even sacrificially give to those who harm us. Jesus here is showing his disciples the kind of society that God intended Israel to be. Not just justice, but mercy and sacrifice were meant to mark their nation as a reflection of God's character. Yes, we see the principle of retribution in the Old Testament. As I said before, it's generally a good principle. But we also see shades of what Jesus is teaching here in the Old Testament. Here are a couple of examples. Leviticus 19.18, which will be relevant again next week. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. You see that? Jesus is drawing out the justice and the mercy that was already inherent in the Old Testament. God always intended for his people to show the kind of self-sacrifice, mercy, and justice that he himself embodies. And so now as Jesus comes to fulfill the law, bringing about his kingdom and establishing God's people, not as a nation, but as his church, he shows us the kind of characteristics and attributes that ought to set us apart. By God's grace and through the work of his Holy Spirit, the church ought to be a people whose desires are no longer for personal revenge. We are the ones who leave vengeance to the Lord. We long for justice. But we recognize that as far as offenses done to us are concerned, we can leave that judgment in the Lord's hands. We trust that in the end, the judge of all the earth will do right. And so we wait for the Lord. He will deliver us. Even in the face of the worst injustices and people harming or humiliating us, we don't resist. And believe me, as I say that, I understand how extreme and bordering on lunacy that sounds. 
But in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., whose nonviolent protests were labeled extreme by some white clergymen who criticized him, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you? So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for love, for hate, or for love? Brothers and sisters, will Lamech be our Lord or Jesus? Perhaps you're thinking, I don't know, Jesus. <laughs> This is too much. You don't know how much I've been hurt. You couldn't understand the harm that's been done to me. A friend, he does know. And he has walked far more for us than we will ever know. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He bore our sin and our shame that we might be healed, forgiven, and made whole in him. Justice and mercy come together at the cross. And it is only in turning from our sin, turning from our shame, and putting our faith in Jesus that we can find true peace. Peace that our past, peace with our past, peace with our present, and peace with our future. We can stare injustice in the face and turn the other cheek because we have peace with God and the greater blow of his judgment on our sin has been borne by Jesus. We can give even our cloak to those who seek to take from us because in Christ we've received infinitely more. We can go the extra mile and walk beyond what even those who oppress us demand of us because Christ walked into hell and back for us. Revenge is not a dish best served cold. For the Christian, revenge is a dish that we leave to the head chef. And instead, we serve up a different dish, a dish of non-resistance in the face of evil, a dish of gracious and surprising self-sacrifice. And we can do it because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Can you speak to your nasty, negative, name-calling uncle at the next family reunion and actually love him, seek his good and salvation and overlook his insults? Can you drop charges against the youths who broke into your home and stole all your stuff and perhaps even seek their good in some additional way? 
Can you speak well, pray for, serve, and engage with a government that is trying to silence and curb your religious freedoms? Do our local members see us as those who simply demand our rights or as those who sacrificially serve the community? This is the way of Jesus. Now tell me, how long have you been sitting in tension on your justifications for retribution or self-defense? Were you able to sit through all of that with a willingness to hear Jesus' words, to let them pierce your soul and to confront you? I've so often heard out of Christians' mouths, including my own, that yes, we should turn the other cheek, but then in the same breath, we rush to a reason for resisting the evil one. Yeah, yeah, we should turn the other cheek, but... And we're like this because we are so wired for self-preservation. When attacked, our self-defense springs into action. And not just with physical harm, as we saw in Jesus' examples. How ready so often are we to shoot off at the mouth when somebody seeks to insult us with their words? How ready are we to defend ourselves, to make sure that they know about it? Yeah, I'll turn the other cheek. But if this person keeps going, then I'm going to let them have it. They deserve what's coming. I hope I have put some space for us between Jesus' words and ours that come after the but. Because Jesus principally calls us to radical non-resistance. Nevertheless, the but is there. And we must deal with it. You see, this verse is often used by many Christians to say that we should all be pacifists. A pacifist is somebody who believes war is always wrong. Sometimes they believe that no one should ever commit violence. They would interpret Jesus' words, especially when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, as saying that in no circumstances ever should a person resist, even in self-defense. Now, there's a lot to commend about this view. At the very least, it seeks to follow through on Jesus' teaching to its final conclusion. But there are other necessary considerations. So, for example, we have two police officers in our church. Should they apply this while on the job? What does the rest of Scripture say to give us some context? A very important distinction to make here is the difference between the personal and civil spheres, between the individual and the society. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper called this sphere sovereignty, as in there are various authorities in various spheres of life. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are important chapters to consider when we think about the role of government in our society. Let me read to you verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good." 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you see what Paul is saying there? God works out his justice through the civil authorities. At the very least, God has given the government authority as one instrument of carrying that out. They are supposed to approve and praise those who do good and punish those who do evil. If a government does not do that, they are not, that's not a reflection on God. That's a reflection on the fact that they are doing it incorrectly. That's not, just because they're not doing it right doesn't mean that it is a wrong institution. It is something that God has placed in our world to establish justice. They are supposed to carry out that responsibility. And so when Paul talks about the sword here, he's talking about physical punishment for crime, perhaps even execution when necessary. So for those like Brad and Matt who do this work in our society, they operate as those who walk the streets seeking to approve the good and punish those who do evil. They protect and serve the community in that role. They are those carrying out God's justice. But as followers of Jesus, they are also called to radical non-resistance. They are called to sacrifice of self. So there's going to be tension for them. As police officers, it is their duty to maintain justice. But as Christians, it is their duty to follow Christ in his radical non-resistance. Which means, at the very least, any kind of abuse of their power or authority should be far from their minds and practice. And that perhaps in appropriate circumstances, they might even show the kind of mercy Jesus talks about in turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. The same would apply for those serving in defense forces. If our nation went to war, they wouldn't necessarily be disobeying Jesus' teaching here. But they need to think hard about what they would do in certain circumstances on the battlefield, ensuring justice and mercy are being outworked. Now, there are lots, lots of complicated questions associated with this, which I'll leave for another time. If you're really interested, you're welcome to check out Augustine's considerations for what makes a war justifiable. Or we can talk about it at question time or some other time, or both. So in summary, if that makes sense, in summary, in society, the government's agents for justice, like police, have authority to use the sword to maintain justice and order. That's how God has designed it for the civil sphere. Well, what about us personally? What about in the personal sphere? Do we really have to open the gates and unlock the doors and leave the milk and cookies out for the thieves? Is that how we ought to live? Well, allow me to give us three considerations. Firstly, your body is a temple and you were bought with a price. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Along with other passages, it's clear that we are not to take our own lives into our own hands. That's why even though we long for heaven, we don't try and speed up that process by taking taking our own lives. No, we, we leave life and death in the hands of God. But that means we don't fear death 
and nor do we seek it. But it does mean that in situations of potential harm, there are legitimate grounds to seek to avoid that harm. So for a person in, a, in an abusive situation, for example, it's okay to run away and seek to escape that situation. Similarly, if a person's life is under threat, an attempt to stop that person is justified. But even as our own law says, we must never use disproportionate force or seek to do more harm to them. And even in saying this, even though these, some of these circumstances may be justified, we must be careful to ensure that our underlying desire is not harm of the other person. The legacy of Lamech looms large in every situation like this. Wherever there is serious risk of harm to us, maybe even not serious risk, there is always a great risk of seeking the kind of revenge that is out of proportion. I think back to the start of these antitheses, the ones that Josh preached on. Why is it that Jesus makes such a big deal of anger? Why does he say, if you have anger towards a brother, then you have committed murder in your heart? Well, you see, there's a reason that we call this blind rage. There's a reason angry mobs crying out for so-called justice usually commit far worse injustices in their anger. We leave justice to the courts and ourselves we show mercy. So even in those circumstances where we are seeking to to ensure that our, our lives are not taken unjustly, At bottom, we must be able to trust that God is working all things together for our good and that vengeance is His, even if we were to lose our lives. If that is not at the bottom of our hearts, the bottom of our thinking, then we will be far too susceptible to exacting revenge. Secondly, The Bible explicitly charges a husband with caring for his wife's physical needs as much as he cares for his own in Ephesians 5, 28 to 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And so he ought to love his wife as himself. It's certainly reasonable to conclude that part of that involves protecting her from harm as far as he is able. And it wouldn't be an unreasonable conclusion to extend that to the care of his family and children. And putting all of that together with other passages of Scripture, there are legitimate grounds to seek to protect one's family. So no, I'm not disobeying Christ's law when I go and lock the gate and our doors each night. Thirdly, and finally, we ourselves, not just the government, should be working towards a just society. We're called to do justice and love kindness or love mercy, as some other translations say, to walk humbly with our God, as Micah 6.8 says. Well, as an example, let's think about uh, the Eighth Commandment, which says, do not steal. One of the underlying assumptions of that commandment is that people in society are allowed to have private property, right? If you lived in a society where everything was shared, you couldn't steal. So if someone were to steal from you, the follower of Christ could rightly show mercy or press charges. Now, the latter would be working towards a just society. 
to press charges against a thief, and you are also showing love to your neighbors and others by doing so. But if you did, could you still, on an individual level, seek to help them change rather than just have them thrown in prison? And if you did press charges, would your heart be for justice in the world? Is that the reason you would be doing it? Or would you do it out of revenge? So, are there some circumstances where a person can legitimately resist the one who is evil? Yes. That would not be disobedient to Jesus' instruction. But what is absolutely crucial is that in each of these scenarios, our hearts are where God wants them to be and not where our sinful instincts are. Now, there's much more that could be said. But the key point is that we seek to, as God's people, follow Jesus in radical non-resistance as far as we are able. Theologian Matthew Henry puts it like this. The sum of all is that Christians must not be litigious, small injuries must be submitted to, and no notice taken of them. And if the injury be such as requires us to seek reparation, it must be for a good end and without thought of revenge. Though we must not invite injuries, yet we must meet them cheerfully in the way of duty and make the best of them. But we've still got one verse. Verse 42. Now, given that this verse is part of this section, it makes sense to think of it in the context of Jesus' point of radical non-resistance. But that seems strange, doesn't it? How could the one begging or trying to borrow from you be the evil one? I mean, aren't they the needy ones? How could they be the one trying to do you harm? Well, I think the situation Jesus is likely describing here is of someone who has harmed you being in this situation. And perhaps someone who sued you for your tunic, but the stock market crashed and the shoe now is on the other foot or the tunic on the other body. You know what I mean? Or perhaps it's a soldier who made you carry his pack full of rocks, but was injured in battle and left without a pension and is now on the streets begging. The one who sought harm is now in this situation. Revenge can look like holding a grudge. Revenge can look like turning a blind eye and refusing to help them, can't it? Don't our hearts feel like revenge is sweet and all the sweeter when we don't even have to lift a finger to see them get their comeuppance? Serves you right. Jesus says, don't even do that. Don't think that way. Don't resist them that way. When you see the person who's been nasty to you at school for years, sobbing in a corner, go over and comfort them if they will let you. 
When that friend or family member who has never shown a single ounce of generosity towards you finds, yourself, finds themselves in a difficult financial spot and you have the means to help them, then you should seriously consider that. When the beggar on the street that you gave money to, thinking you were helping them, you watch they then go and spend it on booze and cigarettes, does your heart harden towards them? Even in just these few scenarios, do you see how easy it is for us to be motivated by revenge instead of mercy? Now, like with the other scenarios, I know this is complex. It seems neither loving nor wise to keep giving money to someone who will keep wasting it, all right? The prodigal son was confronted at the pig trough with the consequences of wasting his inheritance. And it was because of that, it was only then that he was awakened to his need to go back to his father. Sometimes people need tough love, I understand. But brothers and sisters, where is your heart? The prodigal son's father welcomed him back with open arms and a grand celebration. In each of these scenarios, Jesus is showing that though our hearts naturally long for payback, we ought to leave justice to him and instead show to others the overflowing mercy that he has shown us. And that is the fountain from which all of this springs, which brings us to our final law, Lex Gratiae. Law of grace. As mentioned, all of this sounds extreme. And it is. And it sounds that way to us because we don't even nearly scratch the surface of the depths of God's grace. We are far quicker to seek payback and revenge because we don't trust that God will ultimately in our lives and in the world do what is right. We don't trust that in every mistreatment we face through every person who harms us, God is working in us to shape us into the image of His Son. We find it hard to let go of payback and more often seek the downfall of others because we forget how much God has forgiven and continues to forgive us. In short, we think vengeance is ours, not God's. We think vengeance is mine, not His. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, do you want to escape the cycle of revenge? Do you want peace? Do you want to develop new taste buds when you're forced to eat the bitterness of injustice? Look to the one who didn't just tell us to do these things, but walked them. 
They spit on him and slapped him. He turned the other cheek. They stripped him of his robe and hung him naked on a cross. He didn't fight back or call down 12 legions of angels to protect him. They likely would have made him carry his own cross, but because he was so stricken, smitten and afflicted, he probably couldn't physically do it himself. Yet he walked the road that took him to Golgotha. And on that hill, on that cross, where justice and mercy met, God's grace was magnified. Jesus died in our place that he might justly receive the penalty of sin we deserve. And through faith in him, we receive his righteousness. Can you see what Jesus has done for you? Everything you have received, including pardon for your sin and eternal life in Jesus, has been given to you freely and entirely as a gift. We earned none of it. We deserve none of it. And yet we receive it. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Brothers and sisters, when we see that Christ has done that for us, how could our response to those who seek to harm us be anything less? Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would search us, would shine a light on our own hearts and see where our hearts are not obedient to you in this, but even more so to see where our hearts do not look to and hold fast to Jesus in all of this. Please, Lord, may we be those who live by your law of mercy and of grace, who trust in your justice, who leave vengeance to you. Lord, we know that this is not an easy task. And so we pray, lift up our eyes. Lift up our eyes to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.